If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of BBC History magazine, and welcome to our new weekly podcast. You're listening to July 2011, part four. And BBC History magazine is, of course, Britain's best-selling history monthly on sale in all good news agents and by subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or follow us at twitter.com forward slash historyextra or facebook.com forward slash BBC History magazine. Coming up, we have... I wonder, perhaps a bit controversially, but I wonder whether significant aspects of what Elizabeth did were influenced by what she inherited from Henry VIII. That was George Bernard on King Henry VIII. He's a very entertaining man. You know, he he played tennis into his 80s. He would only eat fish after four o'clock in the afternoon. He bought two overcoats in his life. And that was Justin Champion on Thomas Hobbes. So last week we heard from Stephen Gunn talking about King Henry VII. This week our first interview is with Southampton University's Professor George Bernard and he's going to be telling us about Henry VII's son, Henry VIII, surely one of the most written about monarchs in history. He reigned from 1509 to 1547. Now the reason we're doing this is because the August issue of the magazine is a Tudor special. I've invited five historians to argue it out about who was the most important Tudor ruler. And on the podcast, you're going to be hearing my interviews with each of the experts in turn. 
And if you like your Tudor history, you'll be pleased to know that we've also produced a special BBC History magazine Tudor's audiobook where you can hear the full-length interviews that I recorded with all the experts. So you get half an hour each on Kings Henry VII, Henry VIII, Edward VI and Queens Mary and Elizabeth. We're charging just £1.99 for this and you can download it via our website at historyextra.com forward slash audiobooks slash Tudors. Anyway, on with the interview. Just thinking about the man himself, obviously he's been represented many times in films, in books. You know, he's, he's not someone who, is, uh, who, who, who lacks in consideration. As a historian, do you have an insight or a feeling for what sort of a man he was, I suppose, in youth and then in, in older age? What strikes me most is that he was clearly a man of great charm. He had a personal touch. He was able to persuade those for whom he talked that he sympathised with their interests and concerns. Often he would be taking them in, but he had that capacity, and I think that that is remarkable, a sort of common touch, but also at a higher level. Uh, a man of intelligence, learning, well, he perhaps wasn't the most thoroughly learned, but he certainly knew his way in theology, he was a patron of scholars. It's interesting, particularly in the beginning of his reign, the first decade, how many scholars valued his interest and his contributions. Erasmus had briefly been one of his tutors, and the relationship does seem to have continued through the years. Mm. So in those terms, I think Henry was quite a remarkable individual, and obviously occupying the position that he did, he had the scope to develop um, this. Mm. So a man of some considerable charisma. A man of charisma, undoubtedly. Most strikingly, perhaps, um, the rebellion Pilgrimage of Grace in 1536, one of the bad moments of the reign, with 30,000 men up in arms against the king's religious policies, particularly dissolution monasteries, and the king manages, with a mixture of concessions and guile, to defeat the rebels. But there is a point at which, in December 1536, I think the rebels think that they've won. The, king, the king's lieutenant has agreed that there should be a parliament in the north of England, um, that for the time being the dissolution monasteries would be halted. And then Henry VIII invites Robert Ask, leader of the rebels, to come to London and spend Christmas tide with the king. And there is Robert Ask for 10 days enjoying the Christmas festivities with the king. The king asks him to give an account of what happened during the rebellion and Robert Ask does that. The account survive in the public record office today. And Rask then goes back to the north of England, to Yorkshire, and he tells people how good how well disposed the king is towards them and how there will be concessions made, there will be a parliament and so on. And clearly the king, Henry, had absolutely no intention of yielding if he could get away with it, but he'd persuaded, evidently persuaded Robert Ask that he would. That's and extraordinary, I think isn't that's, it? Uh, that is rather remarkable. And, and that personal magnetism was personal it? magnetism but also a, a kind of shrewdness i mean we've no idea whether henry read machiavelli but in many ways he didn't need to advising his diplomats negotiating with france the first king of france in the early 1530s there's a nice letter where henry tells his diplomats not to give the impression that they're giving too much that they should suggest to francis that yes the king was prepared to make some concessions but not to make him feel that it was already a done deal because men value more the favors that you're going to do for them than the favors you've already given 
Ah, rather see. cynical advice, yeah. but yeah. Um, shrewd as uh, diplomatic analysis. Yeah. And at that level, I think the king was very interested, engaged, and very shrewd. Lots of diplomatic correspondence shows how, not perhaps every day, but every so often he met um, ambassadors from France, from the Holy Roman Emperor, and he talked at length and in detail with them about the diplomacy, about the military power politics in Europe of the day, showing that he had a remarkable grasp, that he was up to date, and he had his views. Mm. So what about the question of the difference between the young and the old Henry? A lot of commentators have drawn the distinction between bluff Prince Hal and the bloated old tyrant. Did he change his personality at all, do you think? I'm not convinced that there's any essential change in personality. Obviously, he got older. He's born in 50, 1491. By the early 1540s, he's in middle age. He seems to have had an ulcerous leg from the late 1530s onwards. And in the absence of antibiotics, that just got worse and worse. It grew and grew and was sore, and he couldn't move about. I'm not sure that one needs to look for any other medical explanations of his, his misfortunes um, in, that, in that regard. Um, but it seems to me that he is still as alert and as on top of things as at the end of his reign as he was earlier. I suspect that with the break with Rome, with the fear of criticism, opposition, resistance, that intensifies um, Henry's determination to get all this accepted and the, the ruthlessness which I think has always been there um, has more to work on. I'm not sure the king becomes more ruthless as he gets older. Certainly I don't see him as being paranoid in the sense of being irrationally afraid of things but clearly Henry thinks that if you have crossed him uh, it's probably better to eliminate you and what is remarkable is how many of his close advisors, some of his wives, some noblemen who had been very close to him, there comes a point at which the relationship collapses. And in Henry's reign, these people are executed for treason. That is unusual. But it begins early on. It's not something that comes later in the reign, I think. So it's a case of if you cross him, you'll be eliminated. Is it that simple? Get on the wrong side of Henry and you have to go? The third Duke of Buckingham, Edward Stafford, in 1521, it emerged from gossip of estranged servants that Edward Stafford, the Duke of Buckingham, had been listening to a monk, a monk who was uh, prophesying that one day Buckingham or his heirs would be kings of England. Now, another ruler, another monarch, might well have disciplined such a nobleman, ask for a bond of allegiance, or impose some restrictions on movements. Henry treats this as treason, asks the judges whether this could be construed as treason, because it's not clear that Buckingham had actually done anything, plotted, hadn't raised a sword in anger, that nevertheless this is taken to be treason, Buckingham is executed in 1521. Did Henry therefore view life lightly, or was that just the tenor of his age? That's very interesting. Um, we have no idea whether Henry did this regretfully. I'm not sure that he did. I, I think he simply regarded treason as an offence against himself, as an offence against God, and that he had a duty to rule the realm and maintain order. And these individuals had jeopardised that. Yeah. So... 
is it, is it taking it too far to say he, he killed, he had people executed because he thought it was his God-given duty and right to do that? Well, that's, that's my surmise. He doesn't say that, but yeah. that does seem to make sense, yes. And clearly there is a, a political dimension too here in places that the deaths even of, as it were, le former leading ministers could serve his political purposes at a particular moment. Uh, Cardinal Wolsey, I suspect, would have been victim of a show trial and then executed for treason in 1530 had he not died while under arrest and being brought down to London. Yeah. And, and Wolsey's a show trial against Wolsey, against the papal legate, against the cardinal, would have been very useful to Henry in his campaign to get the divorce to intimidate the Pope and churchmen in England. Yeah. So there would have been a political purpose behind it. It's not a kind of paranoid fear. It's not a, a bloodlust in that sense. There is a sort of purpose behind it. Yeah. And, and similarly later when he has um when he has the Marquis of Exeter executed and some members of the Poole family because they had been um allegedly communicating with Reginald Poole in exile cardinal who was trying to get together European rulers to launch a crusade against the schismatic Henry VIII um, Henry may simply have calculated this was the best way of intimidating other opposition um, I'm not sure it's a kind of, you know, rejoicing in blood for its own sake. Yeah. But there is certainly blood on his hands at many occasions. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting, at the very end of the reign, the Howards, the third Duke of Norfolk and his son, Henry Howard, Earl of Sussex, um, are, Earl of Surrey, sorry, are accused of treason. Um, Surrey um, is accused of having quartered his arms with those of the king. Who knows what he was doing precisely, perhaps laying some sorts of a claim to influence in the reign of Henry's son, supposing Henry died soon, who knows. What's interesting is they're both convicted of treason. The younger one, the Earl of um, Surrey, is executed. But then, before the Duke of Norfolk can be executed, Henry VIII dies. And what's interesting is that the Duke of Norfolk is not then executed. There might have been some legal complications. Uh, you might have had to have a retrial. But supposing, say, as is often said, he was brought down by factions, um, it would have been possible to do something. But no, the Duke of Norfolk remains in the Tower of London, but alive for the whole of Edward VI reign. And that does suggest to me very much that it's Henry VIII who is behind these things. But it's perhaps because he was beginning to have doubts about what the... Earl of um, Norfolk, what the Duke of Norfolk, sorry, and the Earl of Surrey, what they might do in the minority of his son, perhaps didn't altogether trust them. Beyond, beyond the personality then, what would you say are the main achievements of his reign? The difficulty with the term achievement is that it seems to suggest not something successful, but something that one would approve of. Mm. An achievement is something, it's a hooray word, it's a good thing. Sure. You don't, on the whole, achieve bad things. Mm -hmm, yeah. um, in the sense of bringing something to fruition, accomplishing things, yeah. but being neutral about it, well, th there is, I suppose, quite a lot. Um, Henry, I suppose, would have felt that breaking with Rome, establishing his royal supremacy, getting that accepted, we might add, and dying in his bed, would be a remarkable achievement. Dissolving the monasteries, in effect abolishing the practice of pilgrimage. Mm. Again, these are quite radical measures, and he manages to do this without provoking lasting opposition, lasting effective opposition. Mm. Sometimes it was touch and go, the pilgrimage of grace in 1536, that rebellion. There's, there was no certainty that the king would defeat it. It might have gone another way, but it didn't.
Another measure might be the amount of money the king and his ministers raised in taxation at various points in the reign, more than had been raised in many previous reigns, not without opposition and not in the end consistently and not in the end terribly effectively if one looks at what the money was spent on, but nevertheless in those terms something of an achievement, though again that betrays the ambiguity or the un unfortunate character of the word achievement because yeah. particularly the rulers of Edward VI reign had to deal with the appalling consequences of yeah. the financial policies of the 1540s. Yeah. We've, we've talked quite a lot about what happened and the man himself. One thing we haven't mentioned is um, his matrimonial uh, affairs. Um, obviously very well covered and you know everyone knows about the story but how important is what went on there for, for Henry and for understanding Henry. How, how much do we have to know about that to get an idea about what Henry was about? Well, it's a wonderful soap opera, interesting in its own right as a series of stories. But it did have, and it does have, um, consequences. If you marry Catherine of Aragon, who is foreign princess, this is a match that has diplomatic consequences in European politics and if you come to repudiate her or you seek an annulment of your marriage, um, that is a European matter, that's not an internal matter. Mm. Um, if you aim at an annulment of the marriage on the grounds that Henry put forward, which involve challenging papal authority and papal reading of canon law, the precedence for the law of marriage, which was universally seen as a church matter, then clearly that is going to have large consequences. Again, Henry is marrying Anne Boleyn. Um, clearly that's not, again, a personal matter. Perhaps marriage can never be an entirely personal matter for a king. Mm. It has all sorts of ramifications. And then, clearly, Anne Boleyn accused of adultery, multiple adultery with her brother and four other men. Um, that is an extraordinary um, event, an extraordinary happening, which I think is going to be a perennial interest. And so we've talked about his achievements and his failures, but at the end of his reign, how different was the kingdom from that which he took over? Well, the financial aspect obviously is significantly mm. worse because Henry VII, who had remained at peace for the second part of his reign, left Henry quite a considerable treasure, we suppose, whereas Henry left to the rulers of his son's minority um, debts and inflation, debasement and unhappy inheritance, continuing expensive wars. So in those terms, comparing those moments. But obviously I think the most important legacy of Henry were the religious changes and what was associated that, the break with Rome, but perhaps even more so the dissolution of the monasteries, the ending of the practice of pilgrimage, the questioning of purgatory prayers to individual saints, and um, that I think was his most striking legacy. Great. Um, so yeah, Henry's legacy, how would you assess his legacy today? What Henry left might have proved temporary, it might not have had lasting consequences. In the reign of his son, Edward VI, his son's rulers, those who ruled in the son's name, and Archbishop Cranmer brought about a thoroughly Protestant Reformation, not something Henry VIII would have approved of. Henry VIII always rejected Luther's notions of justification by faith alone, or the sacramentarian heresies, as he saw it, coming from Switzerland. In Edward VI's reign, that was different. But Edward VI died young, and that Protestant Reformation did not have time to take roots. Henry's daughter Mary reversed things, she reverted to the papal obedience, and again, that might well have lasted if she had lived, but she didn't. She died 
quite young, 1558. So Henry's policy taken further in one way, taken back in another. But now in Elizabeth's reign, Elizabeth rules for a long time. And I wonder, perhaps a bit controversially, but I wonder whether significant aspects of what Elizabeth did were influenced by what she inherited from Henry VIII. Her religious settlement wasn't quite the same as that of Henry's later years, but I think there are significant similarities. Catholicism, papal policy um, jurisdiction is repudiated, royal supremacy, royal governorship is asserted, but it's not a full-blown, full-blooded Protestant Reformation either. It's ambiguous, ambivalent, and contested from the start. And I wonder in many, in whether in many ways that is Henry's lasting legacy, that the Church of England, with its high church and its low church wings, with its tensions within, you can see all that embryonically from the late 1530s and 1540s. And in those terms, it seems to me Henry, perhaps not in, altogether intentionally, but that, I think, is a legacy which uh, he did indeed leave. And again, the break with Rome, the repudiation of the papacy, which Mary's reaction not lasted, Elizabeth continues and has continued ever since, the, as it were, the separation of England from continental Catholic Europe, continental Christendom, is a very lasting and significant legacy, um, and I think that makes Henry the Tudor that did matter a great deal. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. So you've been listening there to Southampton University's Professor George Bernard talking about Henry VIII. Professor Bernard is author of The King's Reformation, Henry VIII and the Remaking of the English Church, published by Yale. And he's just completed, thanks to an award from the Arts and Humanities Research Council, A Study of Anne Boleyn. He's also editor of the English Historical Review. Now the link for that special audio book that I mentioned before is once more historyextra.com slash audiobooks slash Tudors. The second interview this week is with Justin Champion, Professor of the History of Early Modern Ideas at Royal Holloway, University of London. One of his current research projects is on the work of Thomas Hobbes, the philosopher who lived from 1588 to 1679 and probably most famously wrote Leviathan. I caught up with Professor Champion in his office and my first question was simply to inquire what he's been researching recently. I'm being very indulgent at the moment, so I'm, I'm mainly focusing on uh, some of the great texts that go in um, towards thinking about the Radical Enlightenment in England, mm. and, and typically, counterintuitively, I'm looking at Thomas Hobbes, okay. who wouldn't normally be thought of as an Enlightenment figure. Okay. Um, so I've just, just completed and sent off to the press, hopefully, I mean it needs, needs more work, mm. um, the first edition of Hobbes' almost entirely unknown poetic history. Right. So he, he um, wrote, a, in Latin verse, I mean, pentameters and God knows what else, a history of religion from the ancient Ethiopians to Martin Luther. Um, totally bizarre. Um, 
circulated only in scribal form in his lifetime, published posthumously. Um, he was incredibly fearful that the church would get hold of it, so he burnt it twice um, and then had to reconstruct it. Mm. And it, if we were looking for evidence that Hobbes is probably an atheist and certainly totally um, heterodox in terms of attitudes to scripture, the church, revelation, it's there. Yeah. But nobody's really bothered looking at it. Um, so I've, I've been doing a translation and, and sort of contextualising it. And at one, it's very fun. Um, you know, Hobbes' books three and four of Leviathan, I think have got quite a lot of jokes in, but most people don't. Um, so this, this sort of classic um, work of political science, political yeah. sovereignty, is, is much more complicated than that. And very focused on destroying the power, certainly of the church, if not religion. If we're going to... If we're going to do something on Hobbes, what you, sh you should ought to just say who, t who Hobbes was and, and why he mattered. Yeah, I mean, t Thomas Hobbes is, is still a, a name that's bandied about in contemporary political science. Mm. So, uh, you know, even a few years ago, George Bush and various others were using Hobbes' theories of government and the idea that sovereignty dominates everything, power is right, yeah. to... to create their sense of international relations. So there was a dispute between Blair and Bush over whether America is the great Leviathan. So Hobbes um, is famous to us now. His books are still in print. Um, you know, every American in, who does Western Civ will read Hobbes' Leviathan. Yeah. Many, many historians will. Um, published 1651, uh, famous f picture of the state made up of lots of little men looming over a landscape. And pretty much Hobbes says there is in any successful political society one dominant power and we obey that power because it's got a big sword and will kill us. Yeah. Now Ho Hobbes is um, yeah, he's, he's been regarded as the founder of modern political science in one way. He's treated as in a very secular, civil way. Um, he was a huge celebrity in his own time, not just in England but around Europe. You know, he taught Charles II mathematics. Um, he's in exile in the 1640s because he thinks Parliament's going to kill him. He comes back to England in the 1650s because he thinks the Royalists are going to kill him. Um, he, he's an interesting figure. He's born he claims to the sound, uh, his mother was scared at the sound of the Spanish Armada coming, and he dies right at the height of the Popish plot in 1679. So he has a long life, 90-year mm. life. Yeah. Um, he's a scientist, he's a very poor mathematician, although he thinks he's brilliant. He's uh, refused entry to the Royal Society, so he has a massive polemic against them. He disputes with Boyle over the vacuum. Yeah. So he's, he's a polymath, but really to most contemporaries today, he's, he's a lost figure. That there is some one, he's a good friend of John Aubrey, um, who's famous for writing these brief lines. Yeah, yeah. And Aubrey's life of Hobbes is one of the longest in that volume, and he's a very entertaining man. You know, he, he played tennis into his 80s. He would only eat fish after four o'clock in the afternoon. He bought two overcoats in his life. It, he, he hates and despises clergymen, and some of his most sort of intemperate language is directed at clergymen who said, in your long black dresses you try and tell me how to think, but I think for myself. Yeah. But that vision of Hobbes is not there. If we were sitting in the 18th century, Hobbes would be a much more important figure than we think now. 
quite interesting that you say he's a celebrity in his lifetime. How, how does that manifest itself? It, it, many of his works prior to um, Leviathan, which is written in English mm. um, in 1651, many of the works are published in Latin. So Hobbes um, is a tutor to the um, Chatsworth family yeah. and is on tour, if you like, on grand tour around uh, Europe, but particularly in Paris, and he's part of an international republic of letters. So he, he doesn't just write on politics, he writes on the body. He, yeah. He's a materialist, he, he writes on optics. And those Latin works, um, they keyway um, on the elements of law and a whole series, they corpore, yeah. uh, are regarded by the cutting edge scientists of the time, Mersenne, Gassendi, Descartes, uh, he met Galileo. Hobbes is up there. Yeah. Uh, Hobbes is not a modest man. He says, just as you know, Pythagoras invented maths, I've pretty much invented a new way of looking at the world. Yeah. And, and he does, I think, pretty semi-seriously suggest that Leviathan is a handbook for creating a good politics. Yeah. So he's not just saying everybody should read it. He, he literally proposes in the m mid to late 1650s that the university curriculum is completely transformed. And... and Gentlemen, just read one book. Yeah. If you read this book, you'll discover how to do everything properly and we'll have civil harmony. And the sort of ideas he was thinking about, they were, they were quite hot topics at the time, weren't they? Absolutely. I mean, so sovereignty is, is why he's still with us, because mm. he thinks about you know, where does sovereignty come from? Where does authority in a state come from? Yeah. Um, and, and his idea that we're all equal in a state of nature and decide it, it's best to give up some sort of power to one figure so that we're all sort of equally governed yeah. is, is still very attractive. Yeah. But, but he lived in a society where uh, priests, whether they're Protestant or Catholic, claim to speak with God. Yeah. And that, that's why he's searching for a natural, legal understanding of political authority, because he says if, if we have two sources of authority in any state, a godly one and a civil one, and the godly one says, mm, you're not just going to die, but you're going to be tortured for eternity, yeah. we know who will obey. We're driven by fear most of the time, so we're going to fear eternal damnation, so we'll obey that person. Yeah. Um, so Hobbes' project is to collapse the civil and the religious into one uh, form of authority. And that, that, I mean, is regarded as horrendously heterodox. Right. So, you know, Hobbes after 1651, is known as the monster of Malmesbury and, and is regarded as the sort of classic example of an atheist. So he, he's not enormously popular um, in his own time, and the hobbyist sort of figure, amoral, you know, only seeking their, their self-interest, hostile to the church, becomes a huge figure of, of fun on the Restoration stage and into the 18th century. But we've lost all that. You know, Hobbes is a rather little yeah. grizzly man with a funny moustache. So is it, in his day, in, in the 17th century, was, were ideas more important to us, to, to people, than they are to us today? I mean, we don't talk about ideas that much, do we? But, no. but back, in, back, back then, was, was the subject of ideas something that, that occupied people's minds? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's a really good question to think about. 
in the 17th century, arguably even in the 18th century, authority and power aren't, aren't really physical coercive things. You, know, you, you rule a community by convincing their conscience and their mind that you're doing the right thing. So the battle over, over ideas is incredibly important. Yeah. This is the first age of print. So you know, Hobbes' Leviathan is quite an expensive book, but, but the ideas are also perpetrated in broadsheets, little single pages that might be stuck up in a little pamphlet. So that battle, the war of ideas, is absolutely fundamental. And it's one of Hobbes' sort of brilliant tricks that he says words, even single words, are incredibly powerful. Yeah. If, if I say, you know, I belong to a true church and you belong to a conventicle, I gain the moral high ground. If I say I'm, I'm an ambassador of God and you're a heretic, I gain the moral high ground. So he says, let's see, where does the word heretic come from? It's one of the subjects of one of his little pamphlets. He said, well, it actually goes back to antiquity. And the word heretic just meant somebody with a different opinion. But during the course of the 4th and 5th centuries, the, the church captured it and made it into a bad thing yeah. and then made it illegal and then punished it with death. Um, so, so he's very good at seeing the power of these words. And a lot of Leviathan is simply looking at single words and saying, OK, you know, what does obligation mean? What, why should we obey? How does the Bible talk about it? How does common law talk about it? And that, that cut and thrust, there was a brilliant play recently um, that dramatised sort of Hobbes in the coffee house. Hobbes, you know, in, in, in the print shop with pamphlets going backwards and forwards. And I, you know, we don't do that. Every now and again, a book, you know, normally by Francis Fukuyama, will mm. come along and people say, oh my God, got to understand this. Yeah. Um, but it, it's in, you know, in the academic journals or in the highbrow newspapers. You don't get much discussion of those things in pubs yeah. or even in Starbucks. Yeah. Um, and that, that's a huge loss, I think. Because in, in one sense, what that age from say the 1650s to the the end of the 18th century it's a huge turbulent time where many of the languages and assumptions we have about what's right you know what's a good institution you know virtue egality um you know fraternity all of these values that we see liberty you know american revolution all of those ideas were forged in this sort of debate and you know, if you could read, you were part of the conversation. You, you might not get your opportunity to publish your own thing, but it's public opinion much more important then, even though people couldn't vote. And he wasn't just words, was he, Hobbes? Because he did, as you, as you mentioned, he did have those astonishing um, images mm. with his pamphlets, which sort of, they tried to explain the ideas he was putting across. Absolutely. How important was, was that? And so, I mean, because obviously not everyone could read. No. Were, were those images critical to the, to, to, to the way that he got his ideas across? Absolutely, and in fa fact, I've just um, Michael Hunter's been doing this big project on um, the British printed image, mm. um, and in fact, I've just contributed an article on the Leviathan frontispiece, yeah. the big sort of multi-human um, you know, multi form looming with a, a sword and the stave of religion. Yeah. Uh, and, and underneath that, a little series of descriptions of you know, military um, war, godly inquisition so you can tell the whole story of Hobbes um, sort of complex philosophy from the frontispiece now we find it difficult to do that 
because you know if, if if we see a fork with you know jagged thunderbolts coming out it doesn't mean very much yeah but to the contemporary even quite low down the social scale because their visual culture is drenched in all of that stuff they know straight away the fork is about academic disputation and the thunderbolts uh, a representation of the papal um, inquisition indicting people and excommunicating them so the, the, the contribution I made was teasing apart all of these images and looking at quite how subtle that stuff is. So later on in the 18th century, many of the um, elements of Hobbes' frontispiece are being used in, in a much more explicitly enlightened way. So it's, it's one of the things I want to work on yeah. later on in my research, is that that visual culture of liberty and anti-clericalism. Okay, so he, so his his um, his importance continued after his mm. after he died um, for a while. Why? But why? Why should we care about Hobbes now? Why? Why should we take the blindest bit of interest in in what he was up to? Yeah, I mean, I think I think if if we're sitting in the White House, we we still read Hobbes because Hobbes gives um, uh, Hobbes is the first sort of theorist of international uh, sovereignty. Mm. Um, so Hobbes, and there was a famous book three or four years ago, Robert Kagan paradise and power mm. took Hobbes and said justifies American foreign policy so th that tradition still goes there and, and Hobbes is selling more copies than he ever was m many multiple editions the Hobbes that I'm interested in the Hobbes that deals with um, how religious institutions challenge civil harmony is absolutely what we need to read now Hobbes is essentially confronting uh, a nearly modern world where um, you know, we want to get on with defending our property, we want to be industrious, but there are all these other authorities who claim our allegiance. Um, and and Hobbes, Hobbes writes about Islam and says, you know, if, if, if our state became an Islamic one, we'd have to obey. doesn't matter what the religion is, he says, we'd need to obey. So Hobbes is a, a thinker who's grappling with how you live in one sense in a multicultural society. You know, do, do you allow everybody to express their religion in public? He says probably not, because in the end you'll have a religious war. Remember, he's just been through the 1640s and 50s. Um, so Ho Hobbes' argument is, in the public sphere, there should be one law. So Hobbes was a, would approve, in one sense, of the French laicity. But he says, in the private sphere, in your home, you can believe whatever you want, and, and it is n no duty of the civil sovereign to be interested in whether you're reading the Koran, an example he gives, or whether you're reading the Bible, or whether you're an atheist. He says it's irrelevant. So it's a way of thinking around the problem of multiculturalism in a modern state. Hobbes gives us lots of good sort of arguments, and you know, he is a secular mind, but recognises that religion as, as a set of convictions and institutions is incredibly powerful. So he, he's not a sort of secularist in saying you smash all religion. He's saying we've got, we've got to recognise religion has a powerful political role and then think of ways of containing it and controlling it. Um, so he's very different to the, the sort of liberal tradition that, that's got us to where we are today that says oh, everybody's faith is equal. It's quite patently not true. Um, so tolerating everything 
gets us into these complicated situations where you know uh, Muslim communities will want to use blasphemy laws to prosecute Rushdie and the, the difficulty that we have now in terms of public faith. So I think Hobbes, one, because he's fun. There are jokes in Hobbes that, that um, there aren't in Locke. You know, Locke is very earnest because he's a devout Christian, whereas Hobbes, because he's post-religious, is, is both... Poss you know, he's capable of thinking about religion in a constructive way while not buying into any of it. Um, and you, know, you can imagine... I mean, it's happened already, hasn't it? People have speculated what would happen if Prince Charles, who wants to be you know, head, head of all faiths, um, converted to Islam. It would be a sort of you know, shock and horror, probably. Whereas Hobbes, in, 16, in the 1650s, already recognised that if you were born in Turkey, you'd have a different set of values, and that it would be wrong to say those values were sort of somehow second class. So Hobbes says, just imagine, yeah, the, new, the, the sovereign of England may decide, because he thinks it's right, that the Quran is this, the book of the established Church of England. Well, we'd have to get on with it, he says. That doesn't matter, because that's politics. In private, we can believe what we want. So that, that sort of um, facility and... and you know, willi willingness to think the unthinkable is what, what I think Hobbes gives us today. I hope people will read the verse rather than you know, the 400 pages of Leviathan because it's shorter and funnier, but um, who knows, who knows. So that was Professor Justin Champion of Royal Holloway, University of London. That's it for this week. Before I leave you, though, I have a favour to ask. We already have a digital version of BBC History magazine available for iPads and other e-readers on Zinio, but we're not currently on the Kindle. It would be really useful to gauge the level of interest there is in, uh, in us putting out a Kindle edition, so I've set up a quick poll on our website, simply asking whether you would or wouldn't be interested in a Kindle edition. I'd really appreciate it if you had time to go to historyextra.com slash Kindle and just click yes or no. And of course, as ever, we're keen to know what you think about the podcast, so do feel free to email any observations you have to podcast at historyactor.com or contact us on Twitter or Facebook. That's it for this week. Just a reminder that the website for the new Tudor audiobook is historyextra.com slash audiobooks slash Tudors. Next week, we have Professor Ralph Holbrook on the next Tudor king in the series, and that will be Edward VI, and Professor John Walton talking about the history of the great British holiday. I do hope you'll join us. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.